Good morning, everyone. We have been exploring stories from what many Christians call the Old Testament, but what others know and call the Hebrew Bible or the First Testament. Last week, Aurelia had a great sermon on creation and Adam and Eve, and I highly recommend you listen to it. And I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about Cain and Abel, a story of two siblings that you've probably heard many times. Let me read it for us. It's in Genesis 4, 3 through 15. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought of the firstborn of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out into the field. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you've driven me away from the soil. Remember, Cain was a farmer. And I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. We hear the voice of God in the reading of these words. Thanks be to God. Okay, Cain and Abel. What a troubling story. And I hope you can come to a perspective on the Bible that allows you to sit with the difficulties here. We've said it many times that, and in many ways, that the Bible itself is not God. Our faith has a trinity, not a quadrinity. The Bible is not part of the Godhead. Aurelia's sermon last week, as well uh, as one I, I linked to at the bottom of the guide, it provides more about this if you need. My brief opinion is that the stories in this book are true, whether or not they are factual. To confuse those two things is what we'd call a category mistake. This book communicates truths about life and God as, as the people of God understood it then, and our task is to critically interpret and apply them now. The story of Cain and Abel is one of the stories in the Genesis 1-11 through 11 section that belong to universal history, uh, history for all of us. These first 11 chapters are meant to talk about the broader human condition and human situation of being alive on this earth, and it builds up to the particular history of Sarah and Abraham and their descendants, the Israelites. 
There's a lot of truth here in this story about life on earth. For example, take how arbitrary it all seems, with Abel's offering being accepted and Cain's being rejected. That certainly seems true to me. Life is full of broken logic where A plus B leads to C, except when it doesn't. There's something comforting about the honesty of that in this story. There's also the fact that Cain had the less violent sacrifice between his brother and him, and yet he is the one rejected by God. Cain sacrifices produce, whereas Abel sacrifices an animal. This reminds me not to read my 21st century values and my nonviolent Jesus back into this story. The irony with this, of course, is that although Cain begins nonviolently, he then swings in the opposite direction and he becomes incredibly violent, as if to say, Oh, you want blood? God, I'll give you blood. This points to the proclivity that we have to fall into these dangerous dualisms and dangerous extremes. What's more troubling, though, is that God doesn't protect the innocent and vulnerable Abel. Although God does stop the cycle of retributive violence by not letting people kill Cain, which I think we all need to learn from today, God doesn't prevent the tragedy, which is something that we should all be attuned to in a post-Holocaust world, in a post-George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery world. Having faith does not mean we can uncritically outsource the protection of the vulnerable to the higher power or to any power and then wash our hands of that responsibility. May parents, teachers, officers, bystanders, all of us take note. Next, the story confronts me with the question, what does it mean that these first two human siblings, as different as they are, they come together to coordinate a worship service. I think it points to a religious impulse that we all have, this desire to gather and work together to access something higher. Many people in our day have abandoned religion, and appropriately so. The truth is, I would too if it weren't for the way that some pockets uh, stubbornly refuse to cloister and disengage from the world. But nevertheless, we all still have this impulse to reach beyond ourselves and to connect with what we perceive to be divine and enduring. What else does this story say about humanity? What does it say when Ken, Cain feels rejected by God? Uh, he takes all of that pain and self-hatred and rage about how the system works, and he pours it out on his sibling in humanity. The first natural-born human being is a murderer, and the second is his scapegoated victim. The verses say that after Cain felt rejected by God, God told him to use his brain to make better choices, but Cain instead used that part of his brain that makes him most human, the part that lets him be rational and give forethought to his day and strategize to manipulate outcomes, and he uses all of these very human capacities to lure his unsuspecting brother into a field to murder him. For some reason, he took any anger and frustration that might rightly be directed up or inward, and instead he pours it out on his weaker human sibling. Do you see any of that in our world today? I certainly do.
That's what makes this universal history in my mind. In our story, Cain, the older brother and the leader of the two, he chooses to get what he wants by creating a system of governance by death, or what Akil Mbembe, a Cameroonian philosopher and political theorist, would call a necropolitical system. I've included in the guide a few articles about this concept. I think it's helpful to have it in my vocabulary as I try to understand the world around me. A necropolitical system is any system that uses control and fear and dehumanization to rule and maintain the status quo. It's a system that we can employ on ourselves by the way we talk to ourselves and treat ourselves, or we can use it in our homes, or we use it in our workplaces, or we use it in larger society. A necropolitical system is a system that undoes life and puts creation into reversal. It embodies the slow and systematic violence of the serpent in the Adam and Eve story in which the serpent picks apart the good world that they inhabited, replacing it with a world of fear, inadequacy, and scarcity. Sometimes it's an active make-die system, like choking someone out on the street, but more often it's a let-die system, where you choke people out with dehumanizing cultural norms and policies, like in the Jim Crow South, or the neoliberal economic policies of our day today. It's a system of rule that says, you don't have God's love because Abel stole it. Wait, that's too easy to ignore what that means. Let me bring it more current. It's a system that says, you don't have safety or jobs because of those immigrants, or Those people are poor because they're lazy and they just want to buy new iPhones all the time. It's a way of ruling and maintaining the status quo that traps us in false dichotomies in order to corral us into a pen. It says, we gotta kill grandma in order to get the economy going. (laughs) This is a reference to Texas politics for those wondering. A necropolitical system is one in which black Americans hold $6 of assets for every $100 held by white Americans, according to data from the Federal Reserve from the first quarter of this year. It's a system that incarcerates people of color at multiples higher than white people, and at the same time takes away their voting rights for life. It's a system, like in Texas, where we have the highest uninsured rate in the country, with 29% of adults having no health insurance, and yet we continue to deny expanding Medicaid to people living near the poverty line. As Mbembe put it, a necropolitical system is a system that constantly exposes people to the possibility of death in order to control them. These are systems of slow violence, like pollution, like living in a food desert, like debt, like making healthcare and education in homes increasingly expensive, like dismantling social safety nets for the most vulnerable. They are systems in which we make it harder and harder for people to earn enough money to live. A report from the Pew Research Center in 2018 said that, or reported that after adjusting for inflation, the hourly wage for the average worker peaked in January of 1973. Our economic system currently, with its transfer of wealth upward, has made it so that the average worker in our society hasn't had a raise in 47 years. 
All these are systems in which we could use our God-given brains to make better choices, just like God encourages Cain to do, but instead we often follow Cain, and we use them to dispossess and control. Okay, that's, uh, that's really heavy stuff, right? And not much of what I just said should be new to this community. We speak these grim realities to one another all the time. We remind each other of the world around us, the necropolitics uh, of the world around us. What I wonder about sometimes is if we talk enough about the ways that we can respond. And I've been actively trying to pivot in that direction in my life and work really over the past month. It's It's been overwhelming to see all of the death around us. And I find myself feeling powerless and asking, what do I do? How do I respond? So I'm wondering if instead of participating in the sensational and outrageous necropolitics of fear and scarcity and death, maybe we could do the alternative of build and create systems of life. I'm coming to the point where I would rather ask myself, what can I build? What can I create? What can I nurture? Or what can we build, create, and nurture? It was the mystic Sufi poet Rumi who said, raise your words, not your voice, because it is rain that grows flowers, not thunder. I'm learning that the necropolitical systems, they don't care if I say all the right buzzwords or get righteously outraged. In fact, if I stop here, all this has done is contribute to the feelings of powerlessness and abandonment in me, which are probably the same feelings that, that drove Cain to murder. So instead, I've been intentionally trying to fill my life and my mind with people who build, create, and nurture, and I want to end with a few examples. These are people like Officer Patrick Skinner, uh, a police officer in Savannah, Georgia, who speaks publicly against the warrior cop movement. But he doesn't stop there. He carries homemade neighbor care kits containing food, masks, wipes, tampons, and a roll of toilet paper. He knows that the people he encounter in life, if they had a little package like this, it would make his job easier easier and he would make less arrests. So he gives out these homemade kits that he and his wife put together in their kitchen. He often makes himself vulnerable in order to de-escalate situations because, in his words, he's not trying to play the tactical game down here. He's trying to play the strategic game up here. He was previously incredibly successful as a CIA operative, but he left a few years ago to be a police officer in Savannah, his hometown. Why? He lost faith in the power of the necropolitical system to create a better world. And instead, he wants to build, create, and nurture in the small ways that he can. Whereas Cain said, am I my sibling's keeper? People like him are saying, I am my sibling's keeper. I think of Christian Cooper, a black man who was falsely accused a couple of months ago in Central Park by Amy Cooper, a white woman of no relation. He was asking her to put her dog on a leash per the park rules, and she called 911 and begged them to send police and save her from this black man who was threatening her, she said. 
We all know the necropolitical system that she was calling into action. But Christian Cooper has since refused to comply with the DA who is prosecuting her for filing a false report. He is making good trouble. A quote that John Lewis, who died yesterday, told us, uh, something he told us often to do. Why? Christian Cooper believes that uh, Amy Cooper's being made to be a scapegoat and a martyr and a one-off for a larger necropolitical system, and he wants that system to be dismantled, not one person to be prosecuted. He believes there is bigger, more important work to be a part of. I think of Jane Goodall, who I've been listening to on podcasts and watching documentaries about lately, who said, apathy is the problem of our age, and we can only overcome it with hope. So, teach your children to be optimistic. She says, this is the greatest thing we can do right now, is give our children hope. Necropolitical systems hate optimism and hope, and they hate a refusal to accept that their death world is all there is. I think of members of this community, Community of Peace of Christ, who I see building, creating, and nurturing every day. You're slowing down to share resources, plant gardens, rear decent children, grow roots into particular communities, create ritual and nurture resilience by practicing kinship. We're doing it in grocery stores, in nonprofits and for-profits, with technology and medicine and humor, and even occasionally with theology. Who would have thought in a world that's riddled with necropolitical death systems, we are creating help live systems? In a world right now with a pandemic, in a world with an economic potential recession and depression, in a world in which we are headed into a nasty political season in which both sides are going to call upon the necropolitical system to make us afraid so they can win us over and control us and have us, we are building live systems, help live systems. This is it. This is what we're called to do. This is our response to the death world around us, and I'm glad to be building it with you all. My prayer, my hope, is that God would ever give us the creativity and courage that we need to keep doing it in this world. Amen.